right, so um, I had been doing earlier, and I wanted to conclude tonight, a series on different kinds of joy in our practice. And, you know, first we looked at appreciative joy, uh, mudita, the joy in the happiness of others, the success of others. It's one of the Brahma Viharas, the heart qualities. And then we also looked at meditative joy, or piti, the joy that develops in through the practice of sitting and developing the mind. It's a very natural uh, part of practice that as the mind settles and becomes more tranquil, a certain kind of joy arises that's very distinctive. And tonight I wanted to turn to, in a sense, something that's the easiest to understand, and yet it's also perhaps one of the deepest forms of joy, which is joy in the practice, or the path, or the Dhamma itself. Unconnected to sitting on the cushion, although maybe emerging from our experiences there, there can be just this simple joy that we have a path, that there is a practice, and this is beginning to point toward uh, joy that is not determined by the conditions of the world. You know, even meditative joy relies on our ability to have a quiet place and be sitting on the cushion and have enough uh, silence and, a, and good enough health. Uh, PT cannot always be achieved in practice. And even if we had that ability, every time we sit down, there's still the need to eat and sleep and all of that. So this deeper kind of joy, of simply joy in the flow of life, can be quite subtle and also quite far-ranging. So we can begin to look at some of the conditions that help support joy in the Dhamma developing One of them is confidence, or faith, or trust. I'll I'll offer all of those words since different ones work for different people. There's a wonderful sutta called the Upanisa Sutta that describes a chain of events that can unfold in the mind and heart that start with suffering and end with liberation. Actually, they end with realizing that you're liberated. (laughs) Liberation is the second to last step in that series. Um, But I think it's very beautiful because the other series that we know is dependent arising, which starts with ignorance that we all have if we're not enlightened, and it ends with suffering. (laughs) So it says, you know, this is a way to generate difficulty in your life. And it's good to study that because if we don't understand how we're generating the difficulty, then it's hard to stop that. But this one starts with suffering and says there's an alternative. You can go from there all the way to liberation. So it's a path. It lays out a path. And interestingly, the step after suffering, you know, what is it that we meet suffering with? In this case, it's faith or confidence. Sata is the Pali word. And I appreciate this because it doesn't say that faith is some 
abstract thing where we're blindly believing something or um, have to adhere to a certain view or tenet system. It's nothing complicated like that. It just says that when suffering arises, then the next thing that arises is the thought or the awareness or the sense. There's going to be a way to deal with this. There's a path. Uh, This doesn't have to continue. This doesn't have to lead to more suffering, to all kinds of uh, difficulties. There's suffering, but there's an alternative. There is another way than my usual reactivity. And what follows that is delight. (laughs) Um, Also called pomoja, and what follows that is joy. So there's a sequence that starts with suffering, but then we realize there's an alternative, and that makes us happy. And I've experienced this directly, that I'm delighted just to have a path. (laughs) You know, there are times when something happens, and I realize this would be a moment where I could get really angry, I could get frustrated, I could get impatient, I could snap at this person, but something in me doesn't do that. And what it is, is that knowledge of, it's okay, I know that if I can wait this out, something else is going to arise, I'm going to have another choice, that's wisdom coming in. And then, when I remember, I can feel happy for that. I've also had times of realizing when something, just the normal challenges of life happen, sometimes I remember, oh, 10 or 20 years ago, it would have been very different if this situation had arisen you know, my mind has has more ability now than it used to, and that brings a certain kind of joy. doesn't do anything for the difficult situation, still have to deal with that, but there's a certain feeling of, all right, I got it. You know, there's, without the I maybe, but, you know, there's a sense of this is, there's a way. I'm also remembering a time when few years into my practice, I had the opportunity at Insight Meditation Center up in Redwood City to participate in the refuge ceremony. They offer it there every few years. It's probably the only religious ceremony that's done there, or one of the few. And, you know, it happens every now and then, but Gil does a little class for three or four weeks about refuge and what it means in our tradition. And then there's this actual ceremony where you bring a flower and a candle and you present them to him and you receive and then you take the precepts and the refuges. And it's kind of a formal way of saying that you're uh, entering the path in your own heart. And when I heard about it just a few years into my practice, I thought, well, you know, I'm going to do that. I think I want to do that. Something in me kind of moved toward that, which I was surprised by because I'm not especially... A, usually a religious ceremony kind of person. I didn't have a lot of that in my upbringing. And so I thought, huh, wonder why I want to do that. But at least maybe that was good. I didn't have any allergy to it. <laughs> I didn't have any prior unfortunate experiences with that. So I went, and that's it's basically an expression of faith to take the refuges, especially to do it publicly like that. And I didn't expect at all that what would happen was that my body was filled became very light. It was like there was no weight. And it was filled with these little sparkly kind of um, delightful sensations, little pulses, little blips or something. And I 
I didn't know what that was, but it was great. And then I read later that that is one of the manifestations of piti, of um, meditative joy. So my mind had become concentrated around the refuges and produced this result. So I, I directly saw in my experience this unfolding of faith to delight to joy. So I don't know, I'm convinced that this sutta has something in it. So that was great. It was very, really showed that this is how the mind does unfold. Another condition for joy in the path, joy in the practice, is um, maybe a surprising one to some ears, but it's renunciation. I know that's not always the most popular word, so I could also say letting go or uh, relinquishment or in some cases it's appropriate to say giving up, (laughs) but a sense of usually letting go of a self-concern or some kind of selfishness that we've been attached to and then just easing into realizing that that's not the center of the universe. And there's a joy in that. There's a lightening immediately as we realize that we're taking the bigger picture into account, we're acting with compassion, we're letting go of our self-concerns. I'll talk about this more. I have some more to say about that later. So at a daily life level, the happiness of practice is enabled by renunciation, actually, and specifically by giving up of other activities. This is sometimes something that people have to work with at the beginning of their path, so that there's no way to make spiritual practice a focus of your life or even to have a regular meditation practice if you don't let go of what was in that time slot before. And, you know, people sometimes have to work with this, but it's just how it works. There's only 24 hours in the day, as we define it, only a certain amount of time. And so if you want to meditate for an hour a day, that's an hour that you don't spend doing other things. And so at first what happens is the mind thinks about all the other things it could be doing, and it wants this and it wants that, and it worries that it had to give up yoga class, whatever that is. Hopefully what you gave up was TV or something less nourishing than yoga class. But, you know, there are, there are genuine um, relinquishments that have to happen for this path. And if it someday it becomes so important that it's akin to food or sleep, you wouldn't give up your spirituality in that same way, then there really are things that you really are will be doing less in various ways. Now, truthfully, I don't think much about these potential other activities because spiritual practice is so important to me, but I know people work with that. But often people discover that there's a lot of happiness in having a regular practice, just making that part of their day. So this leads toward what is sometimes called non-sensual happiness, just various forms of happiness that are not related to gratifying our sense doors, which is sort of a technical way of saying pleasant sights, pleasant touches, pleasant tastes. You know, not that we don't have those things as part of our life. That's fine, and we enjoy them, and we can share them uh, with other people. And that's, you know, that's one of the nice things about bodily life, if you will. But there's another way. Um, There's another way to be happy, and that's through developing certain qualities of the heart. So if we make, I like to say this, making the quality of our inner experience be something that's important to us. And so, you know, this may involve sharing a meal with friends, 
but it's not for the meal. We probably feel this, right? It's not for the meal. You're not doing it for the pasta. You're doing it for the friends. And so, you know, it's, and so you start to realize, oh, the love, the joy, uh, the generosity of being with these people, that's what's really nourishing me. And so starting to um, change our mind in those directions, so cultivating then tranquility, contentment, compassion, these kinds of things, we can feel these in a lot of external situations, even in cases where we didn't get what we want. Like suppose you went to a restaurant with some friends and you were going there because you wanted to order the crepes. You love the crepes at this restaurant. But you get there, and they don't have it that day. You say, sorry, we're all out. And, you know, we can't make that today. You wouldn't be that upset, right? Because you, your friend is still there. You would immediately realize which was more important, and you'd pick something else on the menu. So it's actually this, this is a sort of a trivial example, but it's not at all trivial in our life when we decide that the quality of our inner experience is more important than satisfying sense pleasure. It's huge, actually. Now, granted, we are not always experiencing tranquility, contentment, generosity. We can't always call those things up on command. So it may be that what experience is delivering for us in this moment is anger, anxiety, jealousy, um, these sorts of things. And so then what do we do? Well, there are a number of options. One is that we can realize, this is often instruction given by teachers, is to realize that the part of the mind that's aware of that unpleasant inner experience is not experiencing that. It's not actually our whole mind that's angry, unless we're lost, which we are sometimes. But if we have mindfulness and realize, wow, there's really a lot of anger right now, that part is not in itself caught. And so if we can transfer a little bit more of our attention, a little bit more of our um, awareness into that knowing, then we'll suffer less for the anger that's there. And we're already not really suffering as much as soon as we have mindfulness, even of an unpleasant mind state. I was once on the three-month course in, um, uh, at IMS in Massachusetts, and Winnie Nazarko, who's one of the teachers there, she said, oh, I've always wanted to ask this. She had 90 people there, and we've been meditating for quite a while, quite a number of weeks. And she said, how many people here are experiencing predominantly wholesome mind states? And probably six people raised their hand. <laughs> you know, and this is because, those of you who have been on retreat are laughing, <laughs> because you know that on retreat there's a lot of stuff that comes up, and so we may feel like, oh my gosh, I'm seeing everything from my past and all this um, difficulty. Um, but what she was pointing at, and she, she then immediately said, think about it, mindfulness is a wholesome state. So if you're aware that all that stuff is coming up from your heart, the mind is actually in a wholesome state at that moment. And if you attune to the mindfulness and not the anger, depression, sadness, grief, um, you can you can have some small amount of joy of ah, this is being seen, and that's that joy in the practice. You know, boy, this is not pleasant, but at least I'm seeing it. And this is another significant turning point in practice when we would rather see it than not see it. 
That's a big difference, actually. We spend a lot of our time saying, I don't want to know, I don't want to see it. If I can bury it, great. If I can avoid it, great. And then when you start doing mindfulness practice, you realize that you don't actually avoid anything. <laughs> and so then it's like, thank goodness I saw that. Because if I hadn't seen it, if I hadn't seen this uh, pride coming up, it's going to drive my behavior. But if I see it, I have a chance. So it's not that our experience is always pleasant, but there can be, or even always wholesome, but there can be a joy. As soon as we're aware of it, it is wholesome. If the mindfulness is wholesome and we can feel joy in that. The Buddha also described joy that arises from seeing things as they are. So basically joy that comes from wisdom. This is from one of the suttas. When, by knowing the impermanence, change, fading away, and cessation of forms, one sees as it actually is with proper wisdom that forms, both formerly and now, are all impermanent, suffering, and subject to change. Seeing this joy arises. Such joy as this is called joy based on renunciation. So I know that's kind of unusual language, but, um, and then I said forms, but it then goes through the other five forms or things that we see. So it goes through the other five sense objects, sounds, tastes, smells, etc., including the mind. And so it says when we know the impermanence and change of these sense objects, so we know that, that, um, this cell phone is not going to last forever. <laughs> it's recording this talk. In fact, I already think I need to get another one because it keeps having little failures and glitches and I don't want it to die completely. So I could just be angry about that and say, darn it, I don't want to spend the money, etc. Or I could say, yep, that's impermanence. Mm-hmm. And this teaching suggests that actually realizing that in and of itself is a certain kind of joy. And I've experienced this, actually. Is, I mean, this is the, maybe the simple example is when you know something is difficult and you say, this too shall pass. This is a common um, wisdom teaching from many traditions. And in that moment, you're a little bit free of it. It hasn't passed, but you know it will. It's a little bit of freedom. Um, it does sometimes contain the wish that it would pass, and so it's like, Okay, if I just wait long enough, I know this is going away. So there's a little bit of aversion in there if it's not done properly. But this says, you know, seeing forms as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and subject to change, joy arises. And that comes from that moment of knowing that you're not clinging to it. If you know it's not permanent, there'd be no point in clinging to it. And clinging is very closely related to suffering. So if you're not clinging, you're not suffering. Therefore, joy could arise. So there is a type of joy that comes simply from non-clinging. And non-clinging can happen at any moment. Any moment. You don't have to be meditating, etc. So that is starting to be something very powerful. There's a story of a Thai monk who lived up in a cave above a town... He was just, that was just his lifestyle. The townspeople knew him. He was there for many, many years. And one, you know, one day eventually he died and they went up and got his body 
and they saw that in the cave there was a, he had done graffiti on the wall of the cave and it was a, a picture of somebody in monastic robes kind of leaping into the air and kicking their heels and the, um, the caption was oh what great joy to know that there is no happiness in the world <laughs> and it sounds funny to our our conditioned minds. But remember, this was a monk living a renunciate life. And at some point he realized this truth that everything changes, there's no point in clinging to anything, there's no genuine, <laughs> Kabita likes this one, there's no genuine happiness in the sense objects of the world. And that was a great joy to him. And, you know, I'm not saying this is always appropriate for lay people, but I think it's worth considering. Oh, what great joy to know that there's no happiness in the world. Food for thought. I can say that for myself, I've experienced joy as a kind of a backdrop to highly unpleasant experiences on retreat. So, especially yeah, in deep meditation, um, there can be a lot of joy in deep meditation. And then sometimes one of those things comes up and it's not even necessarily a specific personal life event but it's possible to just feel the dukkha of existence or to feel the vasts you know you start getting more connected when you're on retreat and so it's actually possible to start feeling just the incredible amount of suffering that there is in the world and the heart can just break in that moment and I've had experiences like this where knowing that was in itself joyful. I can't say it was pleasant, but I had this just this sense of, oh, the pain of the world, and oh, the exquisite pain of knowing it, which is a type of joy. It's compassion, actually, has joy in it. I think this kind of feeling is there in pleasant experience also, strong pleasant experience. You know, we can have an incredible experience and also the joy of knowing that with awareness. But it's kind of masked because the pleasant experience is so pleasant in and of itself. The 18th century poet Ghalib described it this way, For the raindrop, joy is in entering the river. Unbearable pain becomes its own cure. So joy, in some ways, is an effect. We can cultivate some types of joy. We can cultivate mudita, for example. But some of the more practice-related kinds of joy or more path-related can't be willed. Instead, what we do is we create conditions that are, certain conditions are easier to cultivate, and those give rise to joy. It's kind of a two-step process. So I wanted to share what are called the eight pillars of joy. These are not uh, from the suttas, but they're from a book called the Book of Joy that was written by the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. I think I referred to it in one of the earlier talks in this series also. And I would just point out that um, these two men have both suffered a lot in their lives. They have not had easy lives by any stretch. So they're not just saying, la-di-da, this is how to have a... Um, surface-level, joyful life. The joy they know is coming from a very deep place 
you know, the Dalai Lama has been in exile for 50 years from his country, and the Chinese don't treat the Tibetans well. He's trying to hold that together. And Archbishop Tutu was a spiritual leader in South Africa during the time of apartheid. It was very, very destructive things happening there. And yet, they're very joyful people. And here's what their suggestions are of things that can be cultivated to produce genuine joy in our heart, deep joy. I won't go through them all in detail, but there are these eight. The first they call perspective, and we could call it wise view. Essentially, this is about taking a view of a situation that is useful, (laughs) hopeful, joyful, um, respectful, something like that. And often it's the situation of taking the bigger picture, taking a less self-centered view in some way. So having a perspective that this can change or that there's possibility. And then the second one is humility, which we could call also non-conceit, but the sense of, uh, they, they define it in terms of common humanity. So you don't see yourself as separate from other people, as you know, superior and pitying them, or um, better than them, or even worse, worse than them. You know, I'm the victim, I'm suffering. But um, just having a, a humble, you know, I'm the same as others in certain ways, you know, same human heart. The Dalai Lama talks about this. He says that when he thinks of himself as the Dalai Lama, you know, the reincarnated bodhisattva of compassion, um, and he has to go speak in front of people, he feels nervous because he can't live up to something like that. But when he thinks of himself as one human being talking to other human beings, he says he can walk right into a room with, you know, 30,000 people, stadium with 30,000 people, and, and just talk from his heart. And, you know, we know from having listened to him that he really is doing that, and that comes from his humility, which brings a certain joy. And then the third one is humor, which I like, because we don't really talk about that much in the Buddhist tradition, but these guys were clear that humor is pretty important for having joy. And often it's sort of gentle, self-deprecating humor is good, you know, laughing at our foibles, because we're all... We've all got our stuff that's a little odd. (laughs) And I have the sense, I don't know if this has ever been studied or proven, but I have the sense that uh, people get a little bit more eccentric as they practice. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to getting more eccentric over time. And then we can smile about that. And then the fourth pillar is acceptance, which we could also call patience. And this, this is not just passively accepting conditions that come along. I don't think either of these men would be talking about that from the way they've lived their lives. But acceptance of the reality and the difficulty of the situation. I can't even imagine what it would be like to try to be a, a black spiritual leader in South Africa during apartheid. Um, But somehow you have to begin, if you're going to even begin to do that task, there has to be an acceptance of, okay, these are the conditions, this is what we're dealing with, and what can I do to help here nonetheless? And somehow doing that lightens things up much more than if we're resisting and fighting against and saying it shouldn't be this way. 
it's very hard to be joyful under conditions like that. And maybe something has to change, but uh, we're at least starting from reality, position of reality. And then the remaining four are qualities of the heart that um, we cultivate in Buddhist practice also, which are forgiveness, gratitude, compassion, and generosity. And, you know, again, these are not easy things necessarily, especially forgiveness, but they can be cultivated. And when we have, you can imagine that when we have those things in our heart, it's much easier to feel joy. These are conditions to help joy arise. So if we're feeling at peace with our past through forgiveness, grateful for where things are, attuned to the suffering of the world and wanting to offer something, and then generosity, having the, the desire to let go and do that. Those are conditions that help us experience joy for, you know, for the flow of life. They open the heart in a certain way. But sometimes people want to know or have some feelings about being joyful in a world that has pain in it. It's true. Uh, The world is not that easy. There's a lot of suffering. It's not easy to be a human. There are very difficult things happening at any given time, and sometimes they come close to us. I know many people at this time are feeling a lot of anxiety and challenge. And I do encounter people who feel like it's some kind of a betrayal to be joyful or happy or peaceful when conditions are challenging. To which one might ask, betrayal of what? Betrayal of what? may not be an easy question to answer. We're very loyal to suffering, it turns out. Right? <laughs> when we look inside, we find that we pay homage to our conditioned habits of suffering. But I think it's interesting that the teachings point toward this unconditioned peace. I don't know if you call it joy necessarily, but unconditioned peace. And that really does mean that it's there regardless of the conditions. So, what does that mean? How can we open to that idea? You know, there's appropriateness. I don't think it's appropriate to be skipping up and down and laughing in all situations. That's sometimes how joy looks. I don't think that's the right thing to do at a memorial service, for example, unless it's invited in some way. And yet, um, this sense of having joy or some kind of well-being through not clinging can happen in all situations, even very difficult ones. Yes, things are difficult, and yes, it's a challenging time to think about what's going to be happening um, for some people in our country. And not clinging to that has in itself a certain joy and allows us to be, you know, to act from wisdom. This is from Archbishop Tutu. It helps no one if you sacrifice your joy because others are suffering. We people who care must be attractive, must be filled with joy so that others recognize that caring 
that helping and being generous are not a burden, they are a joy. I think this is interesting. He actually uses the word attractive, which we might not say in our tradition, but it's appropriate. He says we should be attractive, we should... And he doesn't mean like good-looking, like a model. He means um, you felt the way you're drawn sometimes to certain people, usually because they're joyful in some way, exuding an open heart. And so then we feel attracted to them. And he says if we care, it's a good way to be, because then other people see that caring and being generous and being compassionate in the world is not something burdensome. It actually brings joy. And then other people may be inspired also to be generous and compassionate. Not that we try to, you know, put this on deliberately, like, oh, I'm going to look really good so people will imitate me. That's not at all what he's saying. He's just saying, let it shine. Let it, let it be there. And this is very inspiring. You know, there's always that one person who, in the midst of a difficult situation, retains their bearing, has some grace about opening and offering something. Even if the situation is still difficult, we can look at that and realize that we have that capacity too. My friend spent some time in South Africa a couple of decades ago and was, I guess she was volunteering at an art gallery and they had an opening And it happened that um, Archbishop Tutu came to this art opening, to this little gallery she was at, and she said that she was standing all of six feet from him, and that she was almost um, speechless because his presence exuded so much joy. He just filled the room with light, uh, just being there. And he's not a big man. (laughs) He's very tiny, and yet she felt that his presence was just so amazing. So I, you know, I offer that as, you know, here he was, and this was 20 years ago. Things weren't quite as settled as they are now. Um, she said, he lit up the room. He was made of pure joy. So there's something that can come, you know, that can just be a part of our heart. And this joy in the path and the practice and in the Dhamma itself, I think has the potential to look that way too. It's an effect, it's not, we can't will it, but by cultivating these other things that I've talked about and by developing our meditation, the other elements of the path, something can begin to come forth like that, benefits others as well as ourselves. This path really eventually does benefit others in many ways. It, it, it can't not do that. So are there any comments or questions? on joy or on your practice? I think that you're absolutely right that we can be very attached to our suffering Mm. and that can be the hardest thing to renounce because our suffering is so validating of our, it's me, my ego, and I have all this suffering and difficulty and um, we can really cling to that. Yeah, I read recently a wonderful line in a book um, that said, uh, your suffering will not distinguish you, but your response to it might. <laughs> We're all suffering. We've all got these, you know, probably whatever suffering you have, somebody else has something pretty similar to that somewhere in the world. It doesn't make you special. It doesn't make you special, even though it feels 
particular to us, and it is particular to us. We have to deal with our things in life. But I like that, you know, maybe our response can distinguish us in some way. That's the practice. Yeah. Thank you. Is that wonderful poem? I can't quote it, but I think it's in the Dhammapada. It's, oh, it's wondrous and misery, surrounded by misery, we are not miserable. Right. Surrounded by hatred, we do not hate it. You know, it's just like, it's so beautiful. Yeah, that's who that is from the Dhammapada. Mm. Mm. A wonderful way to intend to live. Oh, and then I have to say, it is absolutely a relief to know that there is no joy in essential pleasure because it has absolutely turned out to be true. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen that in your own experience, huh? Yeah. Uh, 